Hey everyone, welcome back to our last episode of Ghouls in the House for 2022. I'm Natalie Latofsky. And I'm Arnold T. Blumberg. And we've been racing against time and the way the world feels to get one more done for the festive holiday season. And we just missed Christmas itself, but as we're sitting here on New Year's Eve, uh, we're going to try to do this one and turn it around fast and give you one last holiday present for 2022. You're welcome. And this time, it's one we've had in the works for quite a while. We knew we wanted to do an episode where we talked about Black Christmas Three Ways, which is not a recipe. <laughs> it's not for entertainment anyway. <laughs> Only part of it is. But the Recipe is definitely not something you should take away from any of these <laughs> Oh my god, that's right, the one of them. I totally didn't even mean that reference. Uh-huh. Yeah. All right, anyway. We'll get there. So anyway, we <laughs> talked about Black Christmas once before. We did a Christmas wrap-up episode of Doctor of the Dead a few years back, and I went back and listened to it because I thought, oh, uh, I don't want to repeat anything that we talked about in that when we talk about it again, because we've been planning to talk about Black Christmas for quite a while, in just this short time since we first saw it then, around 2017, uh, it's become one of the ones that we really respect and like and, and appreciate for its mood, and we'll put it on for atmosphere. And our estimation of it has grown, as it seems to have for many people. Mm -hmm. And in 2017 on Doctor of the Dead, we talked about some of the basics about the original Black Christmas from 1974, and about Bob Clark and his extraordinary, prolific, and varied career, and cut all too short, and the many things that he did, and how he seemed to excel at so many of them. You pointed out in that episode, in just the, like five, ten minutes we spoke about the movie. Right. You pointed out how you really appreciated that the movie had some interesting shots, multiple depths of field. You also mentioned that it was a movie that Later movies forgot the lesson of oh, a yeah. setup payoff. You mentioned that, for instance, there's a scene early in the movie where you find out the front door. It sticks. It sticks. And that pays off later. And you mentioned that like, a lot of times later movies just forget the setup part of the setup payoff process. Right. I mean, it happens a lot, I think. And I think really when we covered this previously in the podcast, we talked mostly about Black Christmas and its place in sort of the history of slasher films and like the proto slasher coming before a lot of of other movies that have been really maybe more firmly planted in like the collective consciousness as like the slasher movies. But I feel like a big difference is that Black Christmas really is a movie. I mean, it's a movie that is professionally and artfully filmed. It is very intricately woven in terms of plot. And it doesn't go out of its way to try to give you a reason for anything. Well, one of, one of the things that I think a lot of people, including us now, mm -hmm. have come to realize about Black Christmas, and also in, in keeping with our usual Ghouls in the House approach, let me take a step back for mm -hmm. a second. Uh, Black Christmas, 1974, directed by Bob Clark. Like you were saying, one of the proto-slashers, a movie that helped to establish the genre for a lot of people. In the film, we've got a group of girls at a sorority at a college who are staying there for the holidays where a mysterious individual who may or may not be Billy, we don't even really know that for sure, wow. 
has snuck into the house right from the beginning of the film and is in the attic and it's based partly on an urban legend of the time that went around quite a bit and also fueled the uh what is it uh, when a stranger calls the carol king yeah, calls, calls are coming from the house which they do in this too yep uh, miss bradford uh, this is sergeant nash are you the only one in the house no phil and bob are upstairs asleep why all right. Now, I want you to do exactly what I tell you without asking any questions, okay? No, no, no questions. Now, just put the phone back on the hook, walk to the front door, and leave the house. What's wrong? Please, Miss Bradford, please just do as I tell you. Okay. I'll get to the No, 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 don't do that, Jess. Yes. The caller is in the house. The calls are coming from the house. Jeff! Jeff, get out! And don't go out there! And, uh, and so starts picking people off one by one, but keeps calling with very creepy, disturbing, sexually charged phone calls that also seem to give you snippets of what, in any other movie, including at least one remake, would be a genuine backstory just winds up being a constantly confusing barrage of tidbits about what he appears to be mad about or upset about and you literally never ever get any answer as to who he is why he's doing what he's doing what the purpose of the murder spree is and right to the end of the film everything is left in total confusion and part of the power of the movie is just that and so place this movie on your slasher chart between Psycho and Peeping Tom from 1960 and, of course, Halloween in 78, which apparently was at least partly directly inspired by Black Christmas. And Clark himself also inspired by the then huge boom in Italian giallo films as well. So it's artful, it's stylish. I wanted to immediately lead off with an apology. <laughs> because when we talked about it the first time i was pretty negative about it we talked about how they leave the house unsearched which leads to part of the ending is just right it's insane how the cops are so ineffectual but they're right there is a major giallo element a current a recurring element in giallo films is that the police are totally ineffective at doing their job arguably a true-to-life element <laughs> right as it were forget what i said about giallo's True to life, the world, yeah. cops can't do their It turns job. out giallos have just been telling it like it is. I mean, there are a lot of times where we watch a movie and you'll say something like, you know, oh, this movie has like a lot of X of like, you know, talking about a lot of violence toward women or this movie has a lot of like negging against women or whatever it is. I'll be like, you know, that's just movies, right? <laughs> like, that's just movies. That's just life. Yeah. But I think it's what makes it so extraordinary is that this movie was put together by a man. And it's not like other films that we've talked about where you have like that Deborah Hill touch of like how women talk to each other. This is something that somehow Bob Clark put together. And that is kind of fascinating and delightful to me because it really does capture like a woman's perspective. I'm assuming the cast had a lot to do with that. They must and, have. And bonding or in knowing this is how we're all going to behave 
basically all I wanted to say was, for reasons that are still very unclear to me, and it's only five years different, I was kind of unfair to the movie, I think, and uh, overly critical about the... I don't know if I said stupid, but I thought like, oh, well, everybody's making really odd choices. They're not searching the house. They're not doing this and not doing that. And I feel like in the last five years, we've just become so much more keenly aware of how stupid people can be. And therefore, there's nothing in Black Christmas that not only rings false, but also isn't nearly as bad mm. as anything we've seen in the real world. Yeah. About how people can be stupid and callous and incapable of making decisions in their interests or in the interests of others. And therefore, what little criticism I had of Black Christmas then does not hold up. And also, we've become more comfortable with it, as, like I said, as a go-to, where it's, this is a very well-made, very creepy, atmospheric slasher. The, the no reason part to it, like we said, is a major part of why it works so well. It also stakes a claim immediately in horror history. Obviously, now in 2022, there's a ton of Christmas-themed horror movies to turn to, including quite a few that we've been wanting to catch up with, including one we did. Ooh. Oh, my. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about that later. But Black Christmas was sort of the one that, that really, I think, nailed it down in a way no one else did. And everything about the movie, from the snowy like vistas to the lights in the house to the just there's an atmosphere to it that perfectly suits the holiday and the and the season and yet turns it into something nightmarish and creepy right down so, to kids caroling at the front door so christmas basically yeah yeah and as you were starting to say before and i think we're kind of stepping on each other's thoughts a little bit and what <laughs> i didn't want to interrupt you because what you were starting to lead into is another thing we really want to talk about which is like you said despite the fact that a man directed this and there are men obviously in positions of decision making in the movie it's a strong female cast and one of the things you've always said is a major plus to black christmas is how the girls in this feel real very and they also like each other this is a key point for later in this episode <laughs> They like each other, they interact with each other like real people, and also for a movie where men were at the helm, this is a very strong feminist film for 1974, or, as we're going to see, for, oh, say, 2019, as well as 2022, and that's a big thing. Arguably, I mean, I don't know that there's much argument to it, I feel like of the three versions of Black Christmas that we have now viewed, the original is the most feminist of the three of them. And part of it is that you get to see very multidimensional characters, right? Like these are people where you know that there's more to them other than just an archetype or like a surface level where you've got sort of the unfortunate very early first kill, but also the iconic one that everyone always kind of knows where she's suffocated with the dry cleaning bag in her, in her closet. But she's like the good girl, the sweet one. She's dating a nice boy from town, but also you go into her room and she has like very hippie, 
sort of posters, nude people on the wall making a peace sign. That like there's more to everyone than just one thing. And to the same extent, you have, you know, our sort of drunken, lush character. Right. But it's also clear that she herself is a little bit broken and childlike and sweet and she collects glass figurines and she has nightmares and asthma and like there are just so many layers to all of these women and in their relationships with each other that they all have a certain type of relationship with the other women in the house and there's just something so real and so approachable to all of it right down to and including the fact that they are all just gaslit like crazy through this whole film. I kind of refer to it as gaslighting the movie at a certain point. I mean, first I wanted to shout out a few of these people who are just, it's an amazing cast, including people who are either already on the rise mm. or who were going to be. Olivia Hussey is our lead as Jess, and she had previously been in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet and went on to many other things. Margot Kidder's, Barb, the one we're talking about, who's the hard-drinking type, sort of Lois Lane in training at this point. Andrea Martin, who most people are going to remember from SCTV. Wasn't she in the My Big Fat Greek Wedding movie? I think so, yeah. yeah. And then as Peter, Jess's boyfriend, who is suspect number one, to such a degree that it makes it impossible for him to be the one, which, as we've already discovered before we went through the remakes for this... There's a certain level of quality in most remakes where he definitely would have been the one. Right. Because the most obvious is just what they go for. And this, they smartly avoid it. But he's played by Keir Delea, who is Dave from 2001. So it's an odd leap to see 1968 Keir from 2001 suddenly get his 70s hairdo in this and be probably the definitive toxic male. What do you think you're doing, Dave? You know, when you want to embody toxic masculinity in a movie and make a commentary about it, well, do what you like with black goo and other things. We'll discuss that later. But Keir Delay as Peter was already a very effective commentary on toxic masculinity, yes. right down to a very 2022 feeling battle in which he is determined to take away her agency and tell her she doesn't have the right to have an abortion. It's so, I mean, I hate saying that it's so brave, but it is. It's 1974. I mean, it's an extraordinary thing, not just to bring that topic into a movie that is in no way about that. It's not a, a romantic drama. It's not a political movie. It is a very strange thread to have in there, but also makes it feel more real. It is more real, right down to the fact that Jess is sort of telling him, look, I'm going to get an abortion. And he thinks he solves it, right? He's like, oh, it's okay. I can stop studying to, you know, get my whatever he's getting, a PhD in angry piano or something. <laughs> he's terrible he's at it. He's very bad at it. And, you know, <laughs> we can get married. I'll get a job and it'll be great. See, I solved it. And she's like, I don't think you understand. Like, I don't want to marry you. And he's like, what the hell are you talking about? Like, how can you just do this? She's like, look. All the things that I told you I want to do with my life, I still want to do those things. And I can't do those things with a kid. So I'm not having a kid right now. That decision is made. Right. And it's extraordinary to have that just 
really real and also very confident perspective from a woman in a movie even today it's unusual to find that in a film so the fact that that was in there and it's something that really does make the movie feel so real and I also think it's just such an amazing touch to show that there can be a villain who isn't the killer that like Peter is still a villain oh yeah and he's still evil and he's still horrible and violent and possessive and like all of these things and full spoilers because we do get to him actually getting killed yeah which is a satisfying triumphant moment very much because so. she will constantly be under threat of of him I yes mean, he will be a, he already makes it clear that he's not willing to take physical violence off the table he doesn't like directly attack her in anything we see but there is a, a clear indication that he will he attacks a piano in proxy yeah yeah i mean he just takes the school's property which is a very large very expensive piano and because he like had a sad and did a bad piano recital which is apparently a thing for a grown adult to just have a a bad, sad piano recital uh, where he just sweats more than one should sweat ever. Anyway, he gets mad and takes it out of a piano, but it's very clear that he sees the piano as Jess and that he would have done the same thing to her, maybe had done in the past, you don't know. And there's uh, something very real about that. It's one of the things I talk about a lot about why I like the Scream movies about how like the villains are people they're not supernatural it's not a zombie or a ghost or a vampire or a whatever it's like they're just real angry sad terrible people and that's certainly who he is and even though he's not like the villain he's a villain it's also interesting where the whole issue with the baby comes up or rather i should say with the uh not quite human yet clump of cells <laughs> yeah i mean because that's where we stand here so you know if you want to you know, if you feel differently find another podcast it is something that maybe just as a side note this is just a note to writers that maybe you really should start being clear in that because even in this you know he's like you're not gonna kill my baby it's like it's not a baby it's not a baby you're not killing anybody no yeah and so i think it's really important perhaps to right. just Pump up the science just a little yeah. bit. Two things I wanted to cover. One is, like you've been talking about, how real everything is. Yes. It's notable that Bob Clark himself apparently went on the record as saying that he felt that young women particularly, but young college students, were not treated with reality or realistically in film up to that point. As he put it, and I love this word, he wanted to capture the astuteness of young adults. And the quote, from him is college students even in 1974 are astute people they're not fools it's not all bikinis beach blankets and bingo which of course is referencing an entire genre of beach movies that had preceded this mm -hmm. and uh it's it's very telling that we're talking about the reality of this and clearly he thought this was an opportunity to show college students and especially young women as people which should not be revolutionary. 
But the other thing is you're talking about the, the whole thread with Jess and Peter and the abortion plot throughout the movie. It didn't seem like it was ever intended, but in another version of this film, I would almost say that that's a clear signpost to some kind of thematic connection between the killer, who may or may not be called Billy, because there's those, there are the little clues throughout. Mm-hmm. The phone calls are largely incoherent, often very like sexually degrading and, and violent in their language. And then occasionally he makes references that sound as if he's replaying possibly something that may have happened in the past in which something happened to someone called Agnes. Right. And and when you start to piece it together, and maybe it's because after the fact we're so used to slasher movies sort of like lifting a bit of the murder mystery genre that you start to piece together, oh, it sounds like, what well, was he blamed for the death of his baby sister agnes and were his parents i mean like all that's just and that's kind of the fan theories that have developed so all that's conjecture right Right. and none of that is really there and apparently clark and everybody involved didn't intend for there to be any reason for any of it so whatever they wrote there may have just been gibberish or just like "Ah, i'm just going to say some things and it'll sound like something But it almost feels like in a movie where they would have leaned further toward there being meaning, the idea that another potential child is being discussed in another part of the plot would mirror the fact that in the past, Billy had something to do with a baby or another, you know, like it feels like there's something there, except there's nothing there. And that's where the real horror comes from, is that there's no answer for Mm -hmm. anything. And we're even left at the end with the very strong implication that Jess herself is killed because they all leave her alone in the room Ugh. at the end. Ugh. I love I love how careful that how like caring they are until the guy was it the father of the other one who got yeah, killed so right Claire's away. Claire's father. Claire's our our sweet good girl who gets suffocated in like the first five, ten minutes of the movie. Her father, who is very kind of buttoned up, nerdy, nebishy type guy. You know, he's on the hunt for finding her because she was supposed to meet him. She doesn't show up. One of the nice touches, too, with him is that he knows something's wrong because it's not like her. And her boyfriend, whose name now escapes me, but he he's a boy from town who is the, the one that she's dating. Like, not the guy from the college. The good guy? Yeah. That's Chris, who's played by Art Hendel. He has a magnificent fur coat. Which I want to I want to talk about Art Hindle and some other Bob Clark people. So don't let me forget yeah. that. But um, he immediately also knows there's something not right if Claire didn't show up, and so he is also demanding that the police look into it. But it isn't until like he comes storming in, like. Her friends looking for her, even her father looking for her. The police are like, ah, she's probably shacked up with a guy somewhere. Like, you know, just give her a day. College girls, you know. And like, finally, when the guy she would have been shacked up with shows up and is like, no, no one's hiding her away anywhere. What are you doing about this? Like, basically comes in and threatens to assault the entire police station. Well, also because he's apparently friends with Lieutenant Fuller. Yes. Who is... Of course, genre stalwart John Saxon, 
one of the main reasons to watch anything is if you find out John Saxon's in it, watch it. What's the worst that could happen? Mitchell. Ladies, you know where everything is? I want you to exercise the bottomless resources of your imagination. Well, yes, but still John (laughs) Saxon. Until he's not there anymore. But, yes, I know what you mean. But it's sort of like this whole movie is spent with them not believing the women when they're telling them things. Even down to the point where now they're going to, like, tap the phones, listen for the crank calls. They Oh, I think... love that phone sequence so much that the 1974 phone technology. Just following, like, physically following the line like he's inside a little computer. I love that handheld thing he has that has a whole rotary on it. Yeah. With a dial. Oh, I love that thing. But it's like they're listening in on the conversations on the phone and they start, like, trying to lead her into telling them maybe it's your boyfriend who's doing this, making the calls. And, like, they're not believing them right up until the very end when jess is basically like not just shocked and completely like out of it she's been sedated by the doctor right so she's been drugged and left in her bed and then claire's father just has some kind of panic attack or something the panic attack equivalent of like a hangnail and suddenly every man in the room panics for him right so they're gonna rush him into the ambulance take him to the hospital what about the girl who was just involved in the brutal attack who you pumped full of sedatives and left in the bed they're like just turn off the light let her sleep she's Mm -hmm. such an angel when she's sleeping did you search the house we'll wait for the crime lab guys to show up before we are you kidding me yep They just leave her alone in bed, helpless, drugged. And to me, they didn't intend it, I think, in 74. But I do think that in and of itself as like an ending to it also kind of ripples forward in time to have such a feminist bent to it. Hmm. Um, That ultimately, in the end, even though she's the one who kind of staked her claim, put her foot down and said no... I, I will have agency over my own body. In the end, a whole bunch of men still took her agency away because they left her helpless. And as many people talk about at the end of the movie, we start hearing the phone ringing. And what's established throughout the film is that I don't think all most of the time, at least, Billy seems to call after every time he kills somebody. So the right. strong implication at the end is who's left in the house to kill He must have just killed Jess and now he's calling. But we don't know that. Mm -hmm. But it's part of the real creepy, unknown kind of feeling that this movie carries through right to the end. No music, you know, and just the phone ringing. Just pan out from the house. Yeah, it's very disturbing. Right to the end, in this case, you talk about final girls. You know, she doesn't necessarily make it. She gets that decision taken away. I wanted to step back also. I mentioned from the beginning about Bob Clark. I'll always be a strong proponent of Bob Clark's work. When I was doing lots and lots of zombie stuff, I always just talk a lot about how he started with two of the earliest full-color zombie movies that helped to establish the modern trend post-Night of Living Dead with Children Shouldn't Play With Dead Things and Death Dream. And then he does this. And then he does Porky's. And sets up one of the crassest but most definitive, like, teen sex comedies of the 80s. 
Talk about like flip side of the coin yeah. from this. And then he creates one of the most uh, lasting, beloved family holiday classics of all time, A Christmas Story. Everything he did was near the best of what you could get out of that thing. I mean, say what you will about Porky stuff. I mean, I saw Porky's, like, I think we've talked about this a lot on the podcast, too. I saw a lot of stuff on cable in the 80s. It was probably, I was seeing it younger than I should have seen some things. I saw a lot of those sex comedies on cable. And Porky's, my God, I saw all three Porky's movies over and over and over again. And they didn't seem, I mean, this is another thing we talk about. You learn as you get older. They didn't, a lot of things about it didn't seem quote unquote offensive to me. They just seem like that's just what we do, which is, is in itself a sad commentary, but that's right. You know, it's just like, Oh, okay. And it's funny. And they're the goofy guys and everything. But what's interesting about it all, forgetting that part of it is that Clark is obviously another one of those guys too. When he found people he liked, mm -hmm. he was loyal to them and kept using them. He had an extended sort of repertory company of actors that if you're fans of his work, you will see pop up again and again. One of the things I thought was interesting the last time we rewatched Black Christmas was in and around all of the stuff that makes the movie so effective as a horror film with the creepy factor and the, the unknown and the atmospheric, emptiness of a lot of it is there's a great deal of comedy and most of the comedy derives from the police which not only serves the purpose of lightening the mood in a couple places but also continuing to reinforce the idea that they're useless mm -hmm. so there's a good thematic reason for that but also one of the goofy cops i kept looking at him and thinking i remember him and then we were just talking about art hindle who plays you know the boyfriend the good guy with his uh, fur coat. And I'm thinking, oh yeah, that's right. They're from Porky's. And the guy who tracks down the phones, the phone guy at the company's got his rotary thing. He's the guy that sells the old man, the Christmas tree and a Christmas story. Clark loved the, the faces, the people that he cast in a lot of these movies. And you see a lot of it. And for me in particular, what I thought was interesting was while this is seen as a proto slasher and it is, there's also kernels of the kind of crass humor and attitude that he was going to later bring into things like Porky's mm. a few years later. There's the whole sex joke thing going on in the police department, you know, in that one bit. So it's like there's some interesting stuff here that also feels like there's connectivity to a lot of other things Bob Clark did. Mm -hmm. It's just a shame that, that most of the things that have revisited Bob Clark's work can't, can't hope to really get close to the kind of stuff he was doing. Billy Lenz? It's the guy that killed his family at Christmas back when I was a kid. You know, a lot of people say he's dead. Poke your head inside. Check if he's been naughty or nice. Well, a long time ago when we said we were going to talk about Black Christmas, the goal was, as we've done very often on the show, it's one of the things I've enjoyed most about doing this show is when we revisit some classics, we tend as a regular theme, watch the remakes, remake or remakes of many. Mm -hmm. And we've covered a lot of them over the course of the show already, from uh, Prom Night to uh, House on Haunted Hill. House on Haunted Hill itself. And usually that experience just underscores the standard wisdom that remakes are inferior. 
Then, of course, we've got things like our Thing episode, where we talk about what an astonishing piece of work the 1982 Thing is. There are movies that are remakes or revisitings of material right. that are better, and there are examples of that. Or but, equally good. Or equally good, and, and have something new to say. And so there really isn't any one way, although mm. it does seem like if you really had to count them all up, most of the time a remake is going to fall short of the original in some fashion. Maybe not grotesquely so. That happens a lot. In this case, we watched two, count them, two remakes of Black Christmas, one from 2006 uh, and one from 2019, both of which got some mixed reaction at the time. The 2019 one is particularly contentious. We'll get to that in a few minutes. But in both cases, I would say these are very poor remakes that utterly fail to recapture what makes the original Black Christmas so effective and in trying to do something new or contemporary only succeeds in lessening the impact. What's confusing to me in a lot of cases, but we'll say in particular in this one with these remakes is why they even did it in the first place. Because in watching both of these remakes, which I think we're going to kind of lump together a little bit here, it just feels like they didn't even bother watching the original. Like they, they showed up to book club, but they didn't read the book and they didn't even bother to read like the Wikipedia article on it. They just like based it off of what their cousin's roommate told them about the movie. But here's the thing for the 2006 one, Clark was involved. Kind of. This was like the last, he died in 2007. If I remember right, it was a, it was a car accident, drunk driver, terrible, mm. horrible, tragic situation. I think his son was in the car. With yeah. Him. But he was in the midst of working on or preparing remakes of several of his movies some of which have never come to fruition after and maybe that's a good thing and in this case he was involved and one of the things the producers of this one specifically came to him with was that they wanted there to be more of a reason why billy is the way he is what's going on they told him right out of the gate they want backstory and he apparently said well look it's your movie so i mean because that's usually what it winds up being it's like what's he gonna do say no they're paying him for whatever they pay him for. He's an executive producer. Right. And it's like, well, it's your movie. But it also sounds like the director was really on board with wanting to work with Bob Clark and like wanting to have his input into the film. And neither of them really got the involvement they would have wanted in the end product. This one is spearheaded by the team of Glenn Morgan and James Wong. Anybody who's an X-Files fan remembers that Morgan and Wong were two people who were an essential part of making the X-Files successful and creating the best of what that show was. They went on to a number of other things, including the Final Destination series, mm -hmm. which in some respects really feels like this is tangential to that. Their approach is similar to a lot of the actors in this. They ported over from Final Destination 1 and 3. Yes. And so this is also, the 2006 one is quite a time capsule of that era. It also fits neatly into what we've been doing on Ghouls in the House for quite a few episodes, revisiting this sort of, the first decade of the 2000s run of horror remakes, nearly all of which we found really off-putting. I'm not sure we've watched any that we, we enjoyed. Didn't, yeah. 
And this one falls right in the middle of that run. Yeah. Morgan and Wong doing their version of Black Christmas, filling the cast with people who were names at the time or known for other stuff that was successful, including Michelle Trachtenberg coming off of Buffy, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who at that time had just done Final Destination. In fact, it's the same year, I think. She's done Final Destination 3, which one day we'll do Final Destination because that's our favorite one. Uh, Lacey Chabert. Kristen Cloak, who was on Face Above and Beyond, and Andrea Martin returning as like the house mother in this to do their one nod to the past, right? Which even the 2019 movie doesn't bother doing or got got anybody to do. It's an incredibly off-putting and hateful group of young girls who evidently don't like each other at all and have no reason to interact with one another, just barking at one another constantly through the movie. In a house so filled with blinking lights that there are sequences in this that are actually sort of difficult to watch. Because who the hell lives in a house where you fill it with so many outdoor Christmas lights that you keep them blinking on and off all the time in the hallways? I mean, we're not experts on Christmas decorating, but my understanding is even if you have lights inside the house, you typically don't want them strobing like it's crazy all the time. In this one, Billy is turned into an X-Men supervillain. He was born yellow. <laughs> they they throw in jaundice for some reason. It, it never has any impact on what anything. He just is. And most bizarrely, they go into really, truly disgusting stuff where apparently he is in fact... I, I'm, I'm losing the track of all of this. He and his own mother... In, in an incestuous, horrific encounter, have Agnes. Yeah. Who then grows up to be a guy who is on the crew that they recruited to play Agnes in the movie. That's the other thing. is two killers in this one, Billy and Agnes. Billy is the yellow one, and Agnes is the man in a wig, except that he's not supposed to be. He's supposed to be Agnes, who is like the mutant... Uh, result of an incestuous encounter between Billy and his mother, which also, because of the way Agnes is depicted to me for in 2006 movie of 2022, just looks like another example of a truly horrible, uh, transphobic, weird gender-bending kind of uh, monster villain that is the worst kind of commentary. And it's like, I don't understand what they're doing with that, because that also plays no role. They just evidently thought it would be cool if the guy played Agnes because, oh, that'll look different. It's like, yeah, well, now you're doing something truly offensive and and insulting. And to me, the worst part in all of that is that you, in getting the backstory that they give you, which, by the way, there's way too many flashbacks in this movie. It's just they just keep pummeling you with flashbacks. And cannibalism. And cannibalism. Why not? But basically... Billy starts out as, aside from being, you know, yellow, he's just a normal kid. His dad loves him. His mom is terrible. His mom hates his dad and hates him because he reminds her of his dad. And then one night, his mom and her boyfriend kill his father, bury him under the house, lock him in the attic, and, like, rarely let him come out. And also in this, like, desperate need to make everything from the first movie have a reason, They made it that he saw his father's death through like a board or something, which is where the eye comes from. One thing we didn't mention in the first movie is there's that iconic shot late in the movie 
where you see one red bloodshot eye and that's stuck with everybody who ever saw that movie. And it's like, okay, because he's just looking through a slat and there's Billy. Ooh, creepy. And in this, they felt like they had a, well, we need to justify the one eye. So they try to make every scene with Billy in this movie, you only ever see him with one eye. Not that he misses, he's missing an eye. Right. Although Agnes is. But that he's looking through with one eye and he saw with one eye his father killed. With a bag on his head, plastic bag. And a hammer. Yeah, and we also get a unicorn later and all that. It's just... I don't know. It's like... It's terrible. So, like, this kid is... There's nothing wrong with him except that he's just been abused his entire life. And when his mom's boyfriend, like, can't satisfy her, she decides, I'm just going to climb up into the attic and have my way with my own son. So, like, this poor kid is locked in an attic, sees his father get murdered, gets raped by his mother... And eventually, like, completely loses it and, like, slaughters and eats half his family and rips out his sister-daughter's eye and, like, gets institutionalized. And then he's supposed to be the bad guy. And it's like, you can't really fully see him as, like, a monster because he's just... I mean, he's been horrifically abused his whole life, and this is such an early 2000s thing to do. And there are certainly plots and types of movies where, sure, there can be nuance to it. Not everything has to be black and white, good and evil. There are gray areas, and I'm not saying, like, villains can only be villainous and heroes can only be pure and good. Like, obviously, there are gray areas in it, but... They just, like, really just took it to an extreme that makes it, like, farcical. And it doesn't, it doesn't work. Like, it just doesn't work. And so I just don't understand what they thought they were doing, really. But the thing that really shocked us about this very uh, poor remake... so. Group of girls that don't look like they have any interest in one another at all, all get picked off in very horrific and at times very perfunctory ways. And just gross. There's a lot of eyeball plucking and some eyeball so eating. Much eyeball stuff in this. It's just, and, they were really trying to be Italian, I guess. And then we get to the second ending because everything kind of ends and our uh, main character is played by Katie Cassidy, gets taken to the hospital. And she's in the hospital for a couple minutes, and the camera very specifically points out the defibrillator for us. At which point I yelled, clear! Yeah, and, <laughs> and like, after you said that, you were like, oh, wait a minute, is this going to actually be the end of Scream 4? Which we should note was several years after this. Mm-hmm. And then we watched the end of Scream 4 play out at the end of Black Xmas 2006, and it turns out... This is where the Scream 4 ending came from. And I did look up that the Scream 4 ending was a major, like, Weinstein meddling with the structure of that film. I couldn't find anyone, oddly enough, specifically saying that when they asked for the rewrite at the end and tacked on the hospital ending to Scream 4, which was very much an afterthought, right? that, that nobody I can find says, well, obviously, they just grabbed the chunk of script from Black Christmas or the idea. Who the Weinsteins were also yeah. just heavily involved in as well yeah because dimension films and but i I couldn't find anybody i was talking about it which is really weird because it's so painfully obvious 
So there you go. If you have any problems with the ending of Scream 4, which frankly I never have. I've, I still like that <laughs> one a lot. It That ending comes almost wholesale from Black Christmas 2006. Clear. 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 You forgot the first rule of remakes, Jill. Don't fuck with the original. They probably thought no one saw it. They're like, nobody saw They're almost the, right. that Black Christmas we did. We could just use it again. Now it's time to deal with the second remake, the third Black Christmas. By the way, when looking this stuff up on Wikipedia, just to refresh my memory on names and casting crew and stuff like that, this is a pet peeve for me. It, it uh, When you look up Black Christmas now, like the original, say like, this is the first film in the Black Christmas series. It's not a series, Wikipedia. It's not a series if they're just all remakes. You you can't, uh, at most I'll give you franchise. Mm. But it's not a series if they're all just remakes of the same story and really not over and over again. If things continue, then it's, never mind. All right, anyway. So... <laughs> Dear Mr. Wikipedia. Yeah, I know. Now we get to the 2019 Black Christmas, about which I'd prefer to say very little because I don't feel it's really my place to say much about it. I'll I'll set the stage and then let you go. <laughs> I don't want to say that much about it either. The 2019 Black Christmas was uh, produced by Blumhouse and put together by uh, director Sophia Takal and her co-writer April Wolf. And at the time it came out in 2019, we were mired in so many things. The Trump administration, the Me Too movement, a million cultural things all colliding at the same time. And in the midst of this, to Colin Wolf did a lot of interviews and they talked a lot about how they wanted to reinvent Black Christmas as sort of a feminist call to arms that would redefine women's roles in these kind of horror movies and how you can find agency and power and strength together in a horror movie. And there are plenty of other examples of people trying things like that. And as we've just talked about, the 1974 Black Christmas alone is also has a strong feminist thread throughout, which may be all the more reason they probably looked at that and thought, oh, this is something we can work with and make even the bones are there. more. The, the 2019 remake winds up being, except for a couple little bits and pieces, visually or otherwise, as little nods, basically a completely different film with a very thin connection to the original in terms of premise, mm -hmm. and instead goes completely supernatural Ugh. and tells a really over-the-top metaphorical story really that is a commentary on everything as a snapshot culturally of 2019 and when it came out it initially got a huge amount of pushback from all the people you would expect it to get pushback from including lots of male horror fans who felt personally attacked by this movie which i would just immediately say well if you feel personally attacked you might need to look inside and figure out why that is the problem, though, is that this is a complicated situation. I think that's the last thing I'll say. You explain it to everybody. <laughs> yeah. So for starters, I don't actually have an issue necessarily with things being only thinly connected to an original. We've talked a lot just between the two of us about the remake that was done of Dawn of the Dead, which really is a remake in name only and the fact that it takes place in a mall 
But I also think that both versions of the movie have merit and have, you know, an interesting story to tell. And they're both good movies in their own right. I do not feel that way about this one. And it's certainly complicated. I think that it's very easy to see the people who initially responded negatively to it and internalize the message, well, it's just too feminist for them and they can't handle it. And in a sense, that's basically what the creative team behind the movie has said in interviews is like, look, if you can't take the feminism, get out of our movie. The problem is there is not really one way to feminism. Like there's not one way to bring that message across or one unified thought. Now there are certainly facts that everybody can or should agree on. They don't, which is the crazier part, right? Like you can agree if you are a sane, rational thinking person that throughout history, from the dawn of time and still today, women have been put upon in this world, subjugated. They have been assaulted and taken advantage of. They have been, you know, had violence perpetrated against them. Like these, these are facts. Where the opinion part comes in is how we solve that problem. And there's not going to be agreement on it. And I just don't personally see this movie as really making a dent in it or actually even really espousing a sort of path forward or like, you know, actually providing us with a vision of what it could be like if like women like actually took back control, you know, like they have this maybe three to five minute, like take back the night moment where they all like get together and gang up on the evil band of black goop affiliated fraternal dudes. Cause basically they kind of turned toxic masculinity into like this physical substance. You have like world's most toxic professor who's like, all I did was say that, you know, men are better at stuff and gosh, now you want me fired. And like, he's leading this group of frat bros who, as it turns out, when you take the bust of the like terrible misogynist slave owning founder of your university and place it in the most toxic place, which is the fraternity, it starts like weeping black goop. That if you smear it all over yourself, you become some kind of super soldier of the black goop. And it's like so on the nose. It's just painful how on the nose it is. And it also gives an out. It basically says, oh, toxic masculinity embodied as this goopy substance has this undue influence over them. And they're under the power of the goop. And even when in the last like literal two minutes of the movie, you smash the goop statue and they're like released from the power of the goop, they don't suddenly become like good apologetic people. You know, they're still jerks. 
and they're still fighting and you have to literally like lock them in a room and burn them alive to solve it. It's bothersome to me because the toxicity and the violence and all of this is not supernatural. It's real. Like this is a real thing. And so by building that supernatural backstory into it, which by the way, in interviews, they've said this was going to be a nuanced take. And I find the nuance lacking in the same way that I talked about on the original, how the characters feel so well-rounded in this one. They're just archetypes. They really are. You just, you go down the list of like types of women that you would have in this movie and you just plug them in and like one of each. And not only that, but 98% of this movie is just women being brutalized. So I don't know how they thought they were making a movie that was all about women finding their agency and working together to dismantle the system because all I saw was torture porn. Like, all I saw was women being hunted down and brutally murdered and tortured, like, literally scarred for life, where he just, like, rakes a knife across both the cheeks of our main character so that even in the end, after she survives this, she's going to literally be scarred for life. Just tip of the hat to nuance there. And it just... It leaves a bad taste in my mouth. And so for me, I didn't like it because I felt like it trivialized a real world issue. And not only that, it didn't show me what they claimed their vision was, which is women working together to dismantle this thing. And instead... They just tortured them. They tortured them. And then all they did was burn one frat house to the ground. So for me, I just, I had a really hard time watching it. There were a few points where we almost dumped out of it because I just felt like they went out of their way to have these women be sort of on the forefronts of enlightened thought here, talking about things that we should talk about. Which is like, why are the quote unquote classics considered the classics where the fight in the beginning and the reason the professor's mad is because one of them wants to change the classics because there are no, no women, no people of color, no trans authors, like no one involved. And somebody was like, well, you can't like you can't really change what the classics are. And her line is, well, those aren't my classics. And that's valid. That's a valid topic to bring up. But then the people having this conversation get systematically hunted down and brutalized. And so ultimately it feels like you're actually watching a movie made by the people who hate these women and want to see them hurt and tortured. And that's the bigger problem for me. So Black Christmas 1974, a classic horror movie and a wonderful annual tradition for the holiday season if you're looking for an atmospheric and truly progressive in many respects yes. horror film and that's the only black christmas it really is you don't need to see the other ones but we did watch one more 
because uh, one of the things I've discovered in recent years, mainly thanks to things like Shudder, oh, just very quick commentary, is that right at the end of the year, lots of terrible things have happened, but that's the world right now. And one of the things that happened was massive layoffs at several really great outlets, including the folks at IGN, who I've written for from time to time, and at Shudder as part of AMC's extended uh, array of television properties. They have just slashed in a horrible, terrible way all through all these different divisions, and Shudder got hit hard. Craig Engler, who we know from Mm -hmm. his days at Z Nation, and who was general manager there, was let go. Tons of people, including, I I feel bad I forgot his name, but he was just recently featured, I think, in their uh, Scariest uh, Moments series that we watched Mm. and talked about. He got let go. I don't know what's going to happen with Shudder. I hope it survives this because it's a great outlet. But one of the things I've most enjoyed about it, like a lot of people love it because it's been doing a lot of original production. I tend to look back more than I look ahead. And I I appreciate discovering things I never saw or never knew about from the past. And in particular, in just the last couple of years, I have learned about the existence of more slasher movies from around 1980 to 82 that I never even knew existed. And I can't believe I somehow missed in the midst of all of that going on. How did I not know these were there? Surely they were sitting on a shelf at Barry's video station or something, but they weren't. And so I'm, I've been in my head and elsewhere trying to keep a list of all these ones I want to revisit. So there are several Christmas-themed ones that we haven't watched yet, and we were thinking of adding one more. And then this one literally came up within the last week or two. Mm-hmm. Never heard of this. To All a Good Night from 1980. It beat Friday the 13th into theaters. One of the earliest slasher movies post-Halloween and right there right just on the cusp of the Friday the 13th boom. And many people have pointed out its tangential connection to Black Christmas. Mm -hmm. And that once again, we've got girls staying at their house over the holiday break. And in this case, getting together with some guys and there's a house mother and there's like several elements there. And so we thought, hey, we'll watch one more that's sort of a kind of Black Christmas semi-remake that's certainly no more or less faithful than the ones we watched. Merry Christmas to all. (laughs) And to all, a good night. (laughs) I don't want to say too much about the plot of this one. Okay. Because this is one where, especially considering how steeped in all of this we are, that we'd never even heard of it until the last month. Worth telling people to check it out? Yeah, I think so. I mean, here's the thing. I think we would recommend you watch it once. It's not a movie. It's not a movie. <laughs> <laughs> it's really not. It's it's just like a bunch of scenes clumsily stitched together. It's kind of like a student project. There's a, a repeated use of a slide whistle as part of the musical score in the times when it's supposed to be dark and serious. And this, as the subtitles say, ominous music. Whoop! This is a bad, bad movie. We are recommending it, not because it is good, but because if you have that mystery science theater kind of mind mm-hmm. and you're with someone or someone's, who you think you might be able to have some fun with it. This is definitely one where I think it provides you with plenty of material to have fun with the movie because it is truly inept 
and confusing and awkward and embarrassing in a way that I cannot remember ever seeing in many other movies in my entire life. Written by the incredible melting man himself, Alexander John Rebar. Directed by David Hess, who many horror fans will remember as the star, if such term can be used, of Last House on the Left and a number of Last House on the Left style films. And also featuring in her first film appearance, Jennifer Runyon, who anybody of a certain age probably saw crop up on a lot of early 80s television. We see her frequently because she was in an episode of The Master, the Lee Van Cleef ninja show from the 80s that we frequently see the Mystery Science Theater. And she's the girl that Bill Murray's hitting on at the beginning of Ghostbusters. And she also has the interesting cultural footnote of playing a Brady. She replaced Cindy Brady in a Christmas special one. One of the many Cindys. Yeah. So, I mean, so <laughs> she was in a lot of stuff. She appears here for the first time. They evidently tortured her into losing 60 pounds before Ugh. they started shooting and then put her in like a baggy robe. I don't know what the hell that was about. So those are all the people involved in this. And then there's some of the most awkward and uncomfortable to watch acting choices, physical acting choices you've ever seen, including one scene a lot of people point to where one character holds another character's face in their hand. For an uncomfortably long time. It can't be explained. You have to see it. And then the other thing is written by incredible melting man Alex Rebar, who came from Pennsylvania, who is, for all intents and purposes, I'm guessing, an American writer who writes a script that sounds like it was translated from another language poorly through like Google Translate or something. And the the sentence structure and the lines, I just wrote down a few because they're just weird. It's the, it's one girl says to a guy uh, right, right before they're going to have sex, it's time for your advanced course in relativity. And you said like, why isn't it biology? Why isn't it biology? Yeah, or like anatomy or something. Like, it's, it's so weird. Somebody refers to somebody who has a lot of money as his fortune is too much to count. <laughs> and and I and I like this one where one character said, you know, something about, oh, it's dangerous out there. They know there's a killer stalking them. And, you know, he would be more comfortable if he knew more or something. Right. And he said, well, then I wouldn't be so preoccupied for my life. Who? What? We had to pause it not that long into the movie so we could look it up because I was like, is this an Italian movie? Like, I, I thought maybe I, I missed something and that this was like an Italian movie where they plugged in a couple Americans. No, 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 no. No, it's not. It's just weird and awkward. And I may have already started uh, chasing him around the house here at home to try to hold his chin for an uncomfortably long period of time. That's so. happening. It's and a thing. Since you don't want to say anything about the plot, I do not. I, yet. I won't go any further except to say that if you are a Friday the 13th fan, and given the fact that this beat that movie into theaters, it's all the more important if you are a student of like modern horror history and slasher history, you should see this once because you will find some interesting things in it that'll recontextualize some of the history of those early days of the mm. slasher boom. And it's it's interesting to see that they're there, but uh, it's a very, very inept piece of work. Oh, it's terrible. We had a delightful time watching it. I don't know if I could watch it again, but it was a lot of fun to watch it. 
If you keep watching it, you will wind up in the funny hutch, as someone <laughs> says in the movie. I'm going to make us a funny hutch sign for our house. Thanks for listening to Ghouls in the House, featuring Natalie Bielatowski and Arnold T. Blumberg. You can find Natalie on post.news at nblatowski, that's nblit of sky, and Arnold at Dr. the Dead, that's me. Our movies this episode were Black Christmas, 1974, Black Christmas, 2006, Black Christmas, 2019, and To All a Good Night, 1980. You messed with the wrong sisters. Ghouls in the House is an ATV Publishing production. Check out our other podcasts, books on your favorite fictional worlds, and other assorted goodies at www.atvpublishing.com. And the hell does he think I am, an acrobat? And she's an acrobat, Ted.